This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger speaks with Oksana Makarova, ambassador of Ukraine to the United States, about the ongoing war in Ukraine, Russia's continued bombardment and illegal occupation of Ukraine, and what America's role is in helping Ukraine fight back against the Putin regime. Ambassador Makarova, welcome to Reaganism. You're the Ukraine's ambassador to the United States since 2021. Really great to have you on the show. Hello, Roger. Thank you for having me. Now we're going to talk about your current role and uh, a speech by President Reagan, which I know speaks to you and many Ukrainians. But before we go there, just to give our listeners and viewers a little background about you. Prior to you coming to the United States to serve as ambassador, you really had this economic background. You worked in Ukraine's Ministry of Finance for a number of years and served as Minister of Finance in 2018. And before that, you were in the private sector, working in ITT Investment Group and World Bank, amongst other places. So you really come to government service as someone who I imagine came to the United States in 21 thinking about how to strengthen the U.S.-Ukraine economic relationship. Is that right? Economic, strategic partnership, investment, of course. I mean, the war has been already in Ukraine since 2014, but we already were in the face when we tried to use the diplomatic means to regain our territorial integrity. So the focus was on a number of peaceful initiatives rather than you know, war, which we have to deal with now. Right. And everything, of course, changed in February 2022. But you're right to point out that this, of course, escalated in 2014 with Putin's invasion and occupation of Crimea. Just one more on your biography before we jump into today. What brought you to government service? You're in Ukraine. Clearly, your background would have allowed you to enjoy the private sector and the benefits. And here you are now for a substantial amount of time since at least 2015, working in the public service? Well, you know, I graduated from Indiana University with a degree in public finance, but then I went back and worked all my life in private equity. And it was a good life, and I could do a lot, volunteered at uh, Ukrainian Catholic University, helped Kiev uh, Mahila Academy, you know, did what I wanted to do. But after... Russia attacked us in 2014, and after the Revolution of Dignity, uh, there was this big ask from everyone to go and volunteer and help your country. So I was asked by then uh, Minister of Finance, Natalia Yaresko, who was uh, invited also. She has never been in, in public service in Ukraine. Uh, she accepted the position of Minister of Finance, and she asked me to be her deputy. She said it was my draft for one year only. Just to help the country and go back to private equity. And here I am. <laughs> so almost, uh, you know, almost nine years, uh, eight yes. years after that. So I used, I ended up spending five years with the Ministry of Finance, serving as deputy minister and then minister. Then so I went back to private life again. Uh, but then my president offered me to serve again as the ambassador here. And of course, I couldn't say no to that. And just like your president, President Zelensky, tenure in office was radically changed by Russia's war on Ukraine in February 2022. Your role as the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States changed dramatically, of course, once the war began. And so much of what Ukraine has been doing to repel Russia's invasion requires your efforts to work with stakeholders here in the U.S. government and the Biden administration and the Congress to make sure the relationship is strong and, and their support, both security support and economic support. I want to get to all of that, Ambassador Makarova. But before we do, this podcast, which we're excited uh, for you to participate in, really was triggered uh, on the basis of an anniversary. And what I'm referring to, the recent anniversary was in March of, of 2023, so a month ago, when we had the anniversary of President Reagan's Evil Empire speech, which was delivered in March of 1983 in Orlando in the Conference of Evangelicals. And that speech, I know, uh, 
has deep meaning to you and perhaps others in Ukraine. Share with us for a minute why this speech really speaks to you and matters to you, Ambassador. It does. Well, uh, you know, in 1983, I was in the first grade in Soviet school. Ukraine was under occupation by Soviet Union. And of course, none of us heard that speech at that time. It was never televised. It was never published. You know, it was never shared with the people especially in Ukraine, because Ukraine never stopped fighting for independence, never stopped fighting for freedom. Freedom is something that is almost a religion for Ukrainians. Plus, uh, you know, faith in God is very important for Ukrainians as well. You know, even under uh, the threat of persecution, I remember in my childhood how my grandma would secretly, you know, like uh, teach us the prayers and pray inside the houses. Because if you go, well, first of all, the majority of churches were either closed or destroyed. But those that were left open, uh, usually, you know, populated by the KGB in order to see who's coming to the church. And the consequences were very drastic, you know. But so this speech, you know, first time I've read it, and it was during the university times already in 90s, you know, it struck me as first, you know, of course, everyone knows the phrase, the evil empire talking about the Soviet Union. We felt it, we lived in it, you know. I'm the last generation of Ukrainians who lived under occupation of Soviet Union. Uh, so him talking about the face, about how important to believe in God and how the, the principles and values are the guiding kind of, uh, uh, you know, themes for any human being. He was talking about Americans, of course, but it felt like he's talking about all of us. But then when he spoke about Soviet Union and about this evil empire and uh, saying that, you know, there will not be a compromise on, again, values and especially freedom. And that God gave us, you know, everything, but also gave us freedom to choose. And it's our responsibility to make the choice right. But I have to tell you, during this last 13 months, this speech, mm. I reopened the speech for myself. You know, there are passages in this speech where you can take the nuclear freeze, replace it with ceasefire with Russia. And, you know, this is something that I can, you know, recite all day long, essentially, like quoting President Reagan, but saying the truth is, is instead of freeze, saying that, that the truth is that the ceasefire, unfair, unjust ceasefire with Russia would be a very dangerous fraud for uh, for what is merely an illusion of peace. So let, the let's, reality. Let, yeah. Let's pause on that because I, I, you're, you're doing something okay. super interesting and I want to set it up just for everybody understands context for this speech in 1983 is there was tremendous pressure on President Reagan to engage in arms limitations, treaties, right, SALT, to reduce nuclear weapons, to have a freeze, because of course Reagan came to office looking to strengthen U.S. military strength to build up nuclear forces as a means to really defeat the Soviet Union, and that was a real shift in American foreign policy and the mindset of U.S. leaders. So he came to this convention to give this speech to explain why accommodation or this freeze of nuclear weapons would not work, both morally and in terms of how the Soviet Union operated. And, and Ambassador Markarov, of course, is our guest here, the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, as you read this speech now, 40 years later, thinking about Russia's war on Ukraine, and you hear out there voices in the United States, in the international community, that Ukraine should accept a ceasefire, you're saying that that's quite similar to what people were telling President Reagan to do with respect to nuclear weapons. Just accept a ceasefire, end the war, just freeze nuclear weapons, right? And then you won't have any problems with the Soviet Union. And what was Reg President Reagan's response, which I believe you're, you're quoting it now, in terms of how this informs your thinking, and you think it should inform others' thinkings as we look at Russia's war in Ukraine? I just wanted to set that up, Ambassador. Go ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, when, when I read this quote from the speech, and I will just quote President Reagan here, he said, the truth is that a freeze now would be a very dangerous fraud, for that is merely an illusion of peace. 
the reality is that we must find peace through strength. So just replace the freeze with any type of, uh, you know, off-ramp or unjust peace or unjust solution with Russia now. And I think President Reagan understood really well Russians or Soviets, uh, regardless, because what Russian Federation is doing now is exactly what Soviet Union was doing. Attacking Ukraine only because we want to be free, to be independent, uh, to live like we want to do and to worship our God and just to be free people. So that speech is even more, I think, um, up to date today. Yeah, unfortunately, tragically, it's it's withstood the test of time. It's it's relevant today, and I agree with you, Madam Ambassador, that it, it really speaks to the moment. Let's talk about the end of that quote and what you were saying just a moment ago, that if we were to accept a ceasefire, if Ukraine were to accept a ceasefire, looking at Reagan's language, it would be the illusion of peace. It wouldn't actually deliver real peace. Explain what you mean by that. President Reagan often spoke about you could have a, an illusion of peace, a, a, a false peace, because you are truly not living a peace worth living, right? Uh, you would not have the freedom. So how, how, how would it translate uh, for the people of Ukraine um, to accept a ceasefire being an illusion of peace? Well, essentially, on the one hand, I can talk about how we see it, but also prove it because we've seen it in 2014 and 2015. So when Russia attacked Crimea and Donetsk and Lugansk, part of our eastern oblast, and we accepted ceasefire in order to find the diplomatic solution, and we spent, as Ukraine, eight years trying to implement the Minsk Agreement, so-called Minsk Accords, in order to restore our territorial integrity by negotiations, all this time Russia used to attack us, to prepare for this attack on February 24th. Now, during these eight years in Crimea, Russians have been arresting Crimean Tatars, Ukrainian activists, they have been putting people in jail, people have been kidnapped and disappearing, similar in Donetsk and Lugansk. So on the territories which are under Russian control, illegal temporary control, people have been killed, tortured, and we have seen it, unfortunately, during this last 13 months, when we were able to liberate more than 50% of what Russians took since February 24th, the world has seen horrors of Bucha. Just a couple of, you know, last week we were celebrating or, you know, commemorating the one-year anniversary of uh, freeing, liberating Bucha, Vorzel, Irpin. This is where I'm from. And... Uh, of course, we're very glad that we were able to retake it. It's, it's a, it's a, but it's a very sad holiday as well, because this is when we opened this mass graves and everything else. This is where so, the war crimes, some of the most notable atrocities exactly. have carried out. Again, this is territory that Russia captured when it invaded in February of 2022. And then, as you just noted, Madam Ambassador, in the months since after Russia's invasion, 50% of that territory has been recovered because of Ukraine's military efforts. And that includes Bucha, where you've seen, you've witnessed now the atrocities that were carried out. So right now on the territories which Russia still occupy legally, Mariupol, the city of the size of Tampa, Florida, which literally was destroyed completely, the city which Putin pretended to visit recently, you know, that we can only imagine with 400,000 people, how many people died there, how many people tortured there. So what is the ceasefire? The ceasefire is essentially saying, oh, let, it, let them have it. Let them kill, torture, and rape people while we will be discussing what to do. And I think uh, President Reagan gives a very clear answer to that. No, we have to show, we have to reach peace or just peace through strength. That's why Ukraine is asking, please, to all of our friends and colleagues, give us more capabilities so that our brave defenders can do their job and can actually liberate all Ukraine. This is the only guarantee uh, for the lives to be saved, but also for freedom and principles to be upheld. I want to talk about that last point. We'll get to the, the strength component. It's obviously been a very important part of your role here in the United States as Ukraine's ambassador 
But that speech, and you referenced this before, and I'm going to read to you a quote here from the speech where President Reagan said, while America's military strength is important, of course, he's now talking about the Cold War, the U.S. versus the Soviet Union. He says, let me add here that I've always maintained that the struggle now going on for the world will never be decided by bombs or rockets, by armies or military might. The real crisis we face today is a spiritual one. At root, it is a test of moral will and faith, end quote. So even for President Reagan, he obviously emphasized the importance of strength, but felt that the battle in his day between the United States and Soviet Union is what he called a test of moral will and faith. Ambassador, how is that playing out in Ukraine's fight to repel Russian aggression from your sovereign territory? Well, clearly that our will to fight, which I think Ukrainians surprised many people with, but we didn't surprise ourselves because our belief in God and in freedom and in democracy is very deep. And uh, there is no way we will live again under occupation. There is no way we will you know, allow our people to be tortured. And uh, it's very difficult. The fight is very difficult. There are so many uh, lost lives and, you know, lost homes. And, uh, you know, the whole situation is a tragic one. And yet uh, people are more united than ever to continue that fight because it's a righteous fight. So, um, you know, I think, you know, without, without believing in what you are doing, without being good and understanding that is that it is ultimate fight between evil and good. And that's again, coming back to President Reagan's speech, you know, uh, he, he didn't call evil empire Soviet Union because it's a nice phrase. He called Soviet Union an evil empire because this is what it was. It was based on the lack of values and principles. It was uh, trying to actually deny the universal believes that both of our nations, Ukrainian and Americans, believe in. So I think in, in a way, um, that speech was also a speech about hope for people who believe in it, believe in principles and values. Uh, and and that, I want to talk about that because he, what Reagan felt was evil and immoral in that speech, and this was true throughout his time in public life, he was talking about communism, as a successor to totalitarianism. When we think about Russia today, Madam Ambassador, you're talking about Putin's autocracy, not the Russian people. And how important is that distinction? And what's your sense of the Russian people's support for this fight? Certainly it's something that best we can tell that Vladimir Putin uh, and the Russian autocracy has to pay, you know, conscripts and 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 prisoners like the Wagner Group uh, to carry out Putin's will. Talk about that distinction and 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 how it's carried over from Reagan's day, talking about the Communist Party, Soviet Union versus the way you look at Russia, Putin's Russia today. Well, of course, on the one hand, uh, we see who's making all the decisions and who's leading uh, Russia into this disaster and unfair, unprovoked war. Of course, it's Putin and everyone in the regime who supports it. At the, at the same time, you know, unfortunately, 13 months and eight years after the beginning of the war, uh, it's very sad to see that Russian people support this war. And we hear, of course, you know, that uh, there are some people who oppose this war and they are in prison. But the number of these people is so small that it almost makes me recall another uh, great speech President Reagan gave in Moscow to the state, Moscow State University in 88. And that's when a lot of people saw it. And even though we all were very small, but what struck everyone uh, that how much what he was talking to Russian people, mostly because he was in Moscow about, but he 
uh, first of all, called Ukrainians as a separate nation in that, of course, uh, speech, but also how much of what he spoke about Americans actually resonated with, with people in Ukraine. We sort of, he's talking about us. You know, and and we it was it was just another proof of what we heard at home how different we are with Russians. So, you know, I really would like to see Russians opposing this war. I really would like to see them revolting and saying this is unfair to attack your neighbor. I really would like to see them opposing the arrest of the American journalist just recently on espionage charge. I mean, something that Soviet Union did the last time actually in 1986. And Russia is resorting to that. Yeah, you're you're raising here the Wall Street Journal reporter who recently now is a hostage. Russia, of course, claims that he's engaged in espionage, which, of course, is a ridiculous claim. He was carrying out what journalists do, writing stories. But the last story he wrote, as I'm sure you're aware, Madam Ambassador, was profiling the Russian economy and demonstrating that they were going to have struggled they would struggle to sustain the war effort which of course is exactly the type of story and media that vladimir putin's russia seeks to to censor let me let me uh have one more exchange with you on the reagan evil empire speech and it's great you also referenced the moscow state university speech because that was almost this subversive role of president reagan speaking to students talking to russians not just the leadership, very important distinction. But it's the end of the evil empire speech at at the end of that quote. So, of course, Reagan famously refers to the Soviet Union as an evil empire. But what he's asking everybody to do here, as you were talking about the the beginning, the nuclear freeze movement, he's saying this is a moral issue. And therefore, right, because this is an evil empire, This is a quote. He says, to simply call the struggle, call the arms race a giant misunderstanding and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. He was simply, he was saying that you cannot ignore the morality and therefore you can't step aside and remove yourself from the fight. I imagine that speaks to you today as Ukraine's ambassador to the United States speaking to Americans that if we're looking at this conflict, through a moral lens, just like President Reagan said, uh, removing yourself from it is 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 the wrong thing to do. Absolutely, and I will I will you know uh, every time I'm asked why does America need to support Ukraine? Why is it in the national interests of of the United States? And of course, there is a lot to say there about. Uh, NATO, about uh, protecting the eastern flank of NATO, about uh, Ukrainians not asking actually to send the troops only to support us in our fight. Uh, There are many rational arguments, but there is always the number one argument, which is a moral argument, is that we live in the world and countries like the U.S., and I'm, I'm proud that our country feels the same, and other civilized countries who believe that people have the right to, to, to dignity, to normal lives, and nobody, especially autocratic, militaristic, nuclear regime, should not have the right to simply cross the border on a false pretense or without actually reason at all, simply go and kill people in their home, homes. So this is a very immoral war that Russia is is holding against us. And, uh, you know, we always have to remind it that it's a very black and white situation. It's a situation when they attack us, we defend our families and our homes, we defend our freedoms. And I will quote President Reagan again from the same speech a little bit earlier where he says, at the same time, however, they must be made to understand we will never compromise our principles and standards. We will never give up our freedom. We will never abandon our belief in God. And I think, you know, it's it's being moral does not mean you have to be weak. And we have all together show that, of course, we believe in, in, in all the principles uh, and, and we believe in all the values. But at the same time, when it's time to defend your home, you have to defend your home. And uh, you cannot choose to die. It's your also obligation 
to, to preserve the life and to defend the life with everything you have. And this is what we will do. And we have to be very clear that democracies like us not only deliver better for the people, not only people in democracies live better, but we can defend ourselves. This is ultimately the most important question in this war. And the reason why every country that believes in the same values is helping us, because we have to show that we can defend ourselves. Eloquently stated, Madam Ambassador, and, and you make a great point, which I'd like to just build on for a second, and then I want you to explain to our viewers and listeners the images that are behind you. But just it, before we go there, the moral argument, the moral case, the reason why you and other Ukrainians find President Reagan's words from 40 years ago with the evil empire speech so meaningful, because at the end of the day, this is a moral stand. This is about right or wrong. Now, we should support. The debate in this country is the nature of the support. And you have people deciding, okay, certain level of support is appropriate, less, more. But the point of departure is what I hear you saying, Madam Ambassador, is that we, the United States and free countries, should stand with Ukraine and support Ukraine on the basis of the moral case. And then each country can decide what it's able to do consistent with its national interests and ability, which, of course, you have now become expert in arguing and explaining in terms of how the U.S. is thinking about it. But we, we should make that distinction clear, that the United States should be supportive of Ukraine's efforts on moral grounds, and then based on its national interests, um, it could delineate what exactly the nature of that support is. Uh, before we talk about that very important piece of the policy, which is how can the United States support the plight of Ukraine and free Ukrainians, what is going on the ground? And, and here I, I turn to the images I'm looking at behind you, flanking you, uh, a lot of images that show destruction and, and, and fire and, and, and images of, of conflict. Could you take a, just a, a quick minute here and outline what, what these images show? Yes, so you can see some photos are from Kiev, some photos are from Kiev Oblast, from Bucha and the places. Some photos are from Mariupol and from Kharkiv. So on the 24th of February, when Putin declared the start of the so-called military operation, which in fact was war, the missiles started flowing from north, east, south. The aircrafts were in the Ukrainian air, simply putting the bombs on the residential areas. And of course, we had the troops that advanced from uh, all three directions and reached as, as uh, close as uh, the northern uh, border of Kyiv. Uh, so my own house has been, and our village has been under occupation since 27th of February until 31st of March, when uh, Bucha and, and other places around it were liberated by Ukrainian forces. And it has been, even for us who knew what Russian intent was, a shock to see that level of destruction. So that's why I have these photos always uh, behind me as the reminder to myself, but to others also, that it's not just some kind of dispute somewhere. It's not that, you know, they came and there are discussions about, you know, who owns what. It's, it's, it's a destruction we didn't see in Ukraine since World War II. And honestly, some of the areas were not even destroyed by Nazi Germany as much as they are destroyed now. Like the city of Mariupol, the Asian city, 90% destroyed. City of Kharkiv, which is one of the major large cities in Ukraine where, you know, uh, a lot of people lived. It was such an educational, it is still such an educational center, but a number of universities had to relocate because they simply do not have their buildings anymore. And those buildings were 200, 300 years old. Uh, the places in... The northern Ukraine, where Russians were uh, occupying it for a longer time, have been really destroyed. I mean, the city of Kherson, which we just uh, relatively recently liberated, has been under occupation for many long months. So many people, again, were tortured and killed and raped. I mean, it's just, you know, account after account after account of unimaginable atrocities and war crimes. But it didn't stop. It continues as we speak with you. 
you know, as we speak, it's not only the long front line that our brave men and women of the armed forces are holding, and our president and our commanders are visiting the front lines on a, on a regular basis. Again, contrary to the uh, very coward uh, Russian uh, leaders and generals, but it's everywhere. You hear the bombings of one city. You hear the Shahid drones, the Iranian drones attack on some energy infrastructure. You hear some people killed just waiting for the bus. So nobody is safe anywhere in Ukraine until we really restore fully our territorial integrity. So it's very difficult. The fight is very difficult. The situation is very difficult. We just uh, went out from a very, the most difficult winter we ever had because some days with a freezing temperature, there was no electricity, no water. But we made it. And regardless of these difficult hardships, regardless of the fact that Russians actually at the moment occupy still one of the largest nuclear stations in Europe, in Zaporizhia, regardless of how difficult and how many losses we suffered, I've been to Ukraine last December the last time, but I of course talked to my mom and to everyone back home. There is no question that anyone would be willing to surrender, regardless of how hard. People will keep fighting because we will defend our home. Remarkable story of resilience and fight and 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 just the the overall Ukrainian commitment to defending their home, their people, and as you referenced, the sovereign territory. Of course, you mentioned Ukraine just got through its its toughest winter. Now we are embarking on the spring. There is discussion of a counteroffensive. Russian lines have dug in. Talk to us about what needs to happen, what you're expecting to happen in terms of Ukraine and the Ukrainian military retaking, seizing the initiative and breaking through, as I think is widely reported, uh, some of that, uh, the, the Russian dug in uh, positions and maybe also add in how U.S. and Western support is critical to achieving that objective. Well, the goal is very clear. The goal is to liberate all Ukraine because every inch of our territory controlled by Russians is a territory where Ukrainians suffer. And we have to liberate them as soon as possible. The question is how to do it in the most effective way. Because again, I have to remind our uh, listeners that we are fighting on our territory. We are fighting among our houses. And uh, you know, while Russians are simply destroying and killing civilians with no um, you know, respect for, for any life, our brave defenders, when they are liberating territory, they do take into account and they try to do it in the way not to put anyone in the harm's way. So it makes it even more difficult, you know, to, to implement the military strategies. But we have, a, you know, a belief, trust in our commanders. They have shown how capable they are. They have shown how they liberated Kiev Oblast, how they liberated Kharkiv Oblast, how they liberated Kherson. And right now, frankly, it's just a function of weapons and, and assistance to us. So for us to have sufficient amount that will enable us not only to start a number of these counteroffensives, but also to successfully complete them. And we really count, like, first of all, I want to say big thank you to the people of America, uh, to President Biden, to administration, to Congress, both parties played you know, crucial role in providing us with so much needed uh, support right now, but to American people essentially, because this is this is what made the U.S. our strategic friend number one, and U.S. has been uh, so far a leader in security assistance, also in in budget assistance and humanitarian assistance. Of course, right now European do Union is actually this year even providing or will be providing, but it's committed already more on the of the budget assistance. Uh, but, you know, that assistance has been crucial and we have to stay the course, as military people say. So Russia is counting on us to get tired. Russia is counting on all of us to get interested in something else. And we have to show, again, like President uh, Reagan said, that we will not compromise on this. 
that we will stay focused, we Ukrainians, but also we, the free people of the world. Let, let's talk about the timing, because Putin seems to believe that time is on his side. And the longer this war becomes a conflict of attrition, the more it benefits Russia and their ability to achieve their war aims. There's supporters of Ukraine, the most ardent supporters of Ukraine here in the United States, whether they're Democrat, Republican, their critique of U.S. policy is they're not moving fast enough because we need to give the support to Ukraine in an urgent and speedy manner so that Ukraine can take that support, military support is really what I'm emphasizing here, carry out a counteroffensive and swiftly prevail in the conflict. Um, how much of that is something that, a viewpoint that you share, no doubt you're aware this is much of the debate here in, in Washington, D.C. and across the country? Well, look, of course, you hear me always thanking American people, but also asking more and faster. And on the one hand, I do understand, we understand in Ukraine that, you know, in any democracy, it's a process. You have to talk to your stakeholders. You have to discuss it. You have to go do it through um, a very, you know, uh, sound process of how to provide this assistance. On the other hand, you know, we are on a war footing and we need it yesterday in order to be able to defend ourselves. So it's it's a constant joint work. And, you know, the, the team, especially the Ministry of Defense and, you know, uh, Department of State and others, they have done unbelievable. You know, like if you think about how much support has not only been provided, but transferred uh, from so many places to Ukraine, in the situation when, you know, we are in the active war type situation everywhere, how much the energy cooperation group has been uh, able to help us with repairs after Russians started completely eliminating our energy system since October last year, how much the Rammstein group where Secretary Austin uh, got all the people together and personally, personally for every time the mid group spends all the time in order to uh, form this and keep this coalition of the willing who are helping us. So uh, there is a lot that still needs to be done. We just have to all be, you know, a little bit more creative, a little bit more brave, and also realize that the more weapons we can get and the faster is actually as counterintuitive as it sounds, is the faster way to get to peace. If we want peace to be restored, just peace to be restored faster, we have to get more in order to be able to liberate more of our territories. And that will have an effect on Russia. We have seen after liberating of Kiev, Oblast, and others, and especially when it's it paired with the sanctions, and we have to increase those as well, which actually diminishes Russia's ability to produce and, and prepare all these weapons of war. Uh, maybe it will push not only physically them from our country, but also in their minds, they realize that instead of spending all this billions of Russian taxpayers' money on absolutely criminal war in Ukraine, they should actually do something for their own people. I mean, we all have seen how badly people live in Russia. Well, no doubt that that's where the West has sought to go, particularly with the sanctions, but overall to put pressure on Putin and to force him to see what the cost of this war is on, on, on Russians. To date, it seems to be he's been able to avoid feeling that impact, or at least the way it feels. But let's go back to the American debate over the nature of the support of Ukraine. I rarely have I been in a conversation where there's an argument that somehow said, "Hey, uh, Ukraine isn't right." You know, the the is, is on you know the side of uh, somehow the wrong side of this. I mean, everybody seems to concede many. Most would concede that Ukraine is on the, the, the moral side of this conflict. The question is, at what cost to the United States? And there are three issues that come up I know you're very familiar with, but I think it would be worthwhile and would be a missed opportunity for our viewers and our listeners 
not to hear from you, the Ukrainian voice here in the United States, the voice of, of President Zelensky, to address these concerns. I'll throw them out there, and you could take them however you want. The first is the blank check, that the United States has been generous, uh, approaching $100 billion, split evenly between security and economic assistance. Not all of that has arrived to Ukraine, but at least the Congress has appropriated all of that. That's one. So are we giving a blank check to Ukraine? Number two, in terms of the military support, is this going to escalate? If we give F-16s to Ukraine, would it escalate? If we give Abrams tanks to Ukraine, will it es escalate beyond the borders of Ukraine? And now we'll find ourselves in a European-wide conflict that we haven't seen uh, since World War II. Uh, you know, those are the the the, the two real big concerns uh, you hear. There's another uh, critique out there that, you know, that the United States has to focus on, on its domestic policy here. We've had these endless wars and it kind of gets to, to our recent history that makes people skeptical. Go ahead and, and, and take those as, as you see fit. Yes. So let's start with the first one, the blank check. And I have to tell you, we never asked for one and uh, we never received one uh, as a blank check. So the assistance that the U.S. has been providing to us, and we're very grateful for it, comes in three forms, essentially. The security assistance, budget assistance into Ukrainian budget, which is uh, and humanitarian assistance. The security assistance, which is the largest part of it, we actually receive the goods. We don't receive the money. We receive the so much needed high marshes and javelins and everything else. So the money do not leave uh, this country and actually create jobs also here. I mean, now we should all view this as uh, investment in democracy. We need these weapons in order to defend our homes. They are produced in, in a number of countries, especially the majority of them are produced here. Uh, and uh, this allows not only us to defend ourselves, but it, it allows also U.S. to strengthen themselves. You know, we are using this, some of this uh, uh, equipment in the way it was never used before with the intensity. There is a lot of information exchange and, and ideas exchange. So it, it, it's doing, uh, you know, a good thing for us, but also good thing for the communities where, where this is produced. No doubt there it's manufacturing the United States and the goods are delivered, but you do hear, and there is a reasonable concern that is depleting the stocks of the United States. We have to care about Taiwan. We have to be aware of other potential conflicts around the world. So related to the point you're just making, perhaps hit on the concern that the United States won't have the munitions it needs because so much of it is going to Ukraine. Oh, but it will, because, you know, if you look at the, at the, uh, uh, capabilities that we are getting, you know, I, 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 I honestly uh, doubt that the howitzers, uh, we are fighting such a World War One type of war at the moment, uh, because that's the war Russians have uh, brought to ourselves. So um, I think it's just a question of how to produce more, how to increase this uh, arsenal of democracy, how to invest more into it. And especially given the fact that Russia is not the only threat uh, uh, for the for the civilized world, we should take it seriously. And I think this is a wake up call. Also, you know, this war in Ukraine. Now, the second, and and I think you know, America as a great country can do it. You know, you have this great expression that you can uh, walk and chew gum at the same place. This is this is it. You know, you you like as a leader. Uh, United States and with other colleagues and partners, you are not alone in this. Uh, it can be done. The second part is that uh, we are reporting uh, and the transparency and accountability on all of this, from weapons to budget assistance, uh, is, is at the level which I would be, as the former Minister of Finance, very happy with. I mean, literally, we, we use the NATO log-fast system, we use other uh, systems to track all the weapons and how it's used and where it's used and... Uh, you know, uh, it's it's a very transparent system. We report back on on uh, all of it, on the budget assistance. You know, the money that we are getting into the budget, the eight point five uh, billion last year. 
US dollars. And this year in the budget, there is 9.9 billion, huge amounts of money, of course. Uh, and we're getting it in forms of grants for which we are very grateful. But this money goes to support the IDPs, to support the, the, uh, the functions of uh, our healthcare personnel, of educators, of, uh, you know, the, the basic, and you can track almost all of this money uh, all the way until the physical individual that receives it. And again, we have the three inspector generals, we have the audit that has been done, uh, we have the reporting from us through USAID, Treasury, and the World Bank Trust Fund. So all the processes for it to be very transparent is there. But also, you know, why I'm calling it an investment into democracy. If God forbid Ukraine falls, and it a little bit touches the escalation, I think, uh, yeah. argument, because it's related, you know, it's actually vice versa. If Ukraine defends itself, then we prevent the World War Three type of situation, because we can then stop Russia while it's still in Ukraine. But if God forbid Ukraine fall, uh, we have all heard Mr. Putin speaking publicly, what is this about? He's restoring some kind of empire, whatever that empire is, Soviet, Russian, or whatever he calls it. And that unfortunately includes Poland and Baltic state and so many other countries, which are under the protection of the NATO and Article 5. So if we cannot stop Putin in Ukraine, and it has to be stopped in some other countries, then not only the United States and American people will have to help with equipment and money, but also send people to fight. We never asked any of our friends and allies, including the US, to send people to fight. We still have sufficient number of Ukrainians who are willing to defend their homes. We just need, as Winston Churchill said, give me the tools and I'll, I'll do the job. This is what we need, the tools. So essentially, we are not only defending us, we are defending all the eastern flank. We are defending uh, all our colleagues who know what Russia is capable of. Uh, so on both arguments, on escalation and on the you know blank check or efficiency of the support, it's more efficient, it's less escalatory to stop Putin while it's still in Ukraine. And by the way, coming back to our, yeah. to our speech that we have discussed today, this is the appeasement or wishful thinking about what President Reagan was talking about, that actually, you know, appeasing the aggressor would lead to, to bad circumstances. And we've seen it in 1939, unfortunately, and we cannot afford it. Well, and you, you don't have to go back to 1939, Ambassador. You can talk about 2008 in terms of Putin's aggression in Georgia. And then, of course, uh, relevant, most relevant to Ukraine, 2014 which have, as we discussed at the beginning of this discussion is what brought you into government in the aftermath. Um, these, uh, a good set of, of, of points and expert in your file. No one does it better than you ambassador in terms of explaining. And I would add one more to it, which is this has been tragic. What's happened to Ukraine and the images behind you and the stories you've shared show the, the, the cost and lives and, 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 and it's a tragedy of this, of this war. For the West and the United States, it's the bravery and heroism of Ukrainians that has depleted, not yet defeated, but certainly depleted in ways people would, the best analysts wouldn't have expected uh, the Russian conventional military power. And that is something the West owes Ukraine a great deal of gratitude for, of course, not only for defending your sovereignty and fighting for freedom, but this threat of the Russian military used for these aggressive purposes that we've seen now has been reduced because of the way Ukraine has prevailed in defending its, its territory so far and, and repelled to date uh, Russia's conventional military attack and weakened it so significantly. Before we wrap up our conversation, we're, we're grateful for your time. There's one more piece to this Reagan history with Ukraine that I discovered in preparation for our conversation here. We're with the, Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, Ambassador Makarova. This case takes us to February 20th, 1978. For many of our listeners and viewers, President Reagan, they know, gave radio broadcasts that were out there daily. And he dedicated one broadcast in 1978, profiling how the Soviets tried to eliminate a longstanding Ukrainian Christmas carol called Nova Radist Stala. 
And President Reagan shared with his listeners, and at the time Reagan was doing this, there were tens of millions of people listening to him. So this is something his listenership, many Americans would have heard, was that the Ukrainians did not allow the Soviets to change this song entirely. They kept up a unwritten ending to this carol. Um, Madam Ambassador, why don't you just take it from there in terms of what President Reagan shared with the American people in 1978? This this is remarkable, and thank you for sharing it with me. First of all, that carol is uh, one of the most popular ones. We all, you know, we're singing it from the childhood. I learned it from my grandma. You know, it's a very beautiful musically uh, carol and very simple words, but going right into the heart, you know, and uh, it's... Um, it's 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 remarkable how much Soviets fought with Christmas, how they tried to replace it with New Year celebrations. You know, uh, people were, but you know, the fact that uh, President Reagan in 1978 spoke about it uh, meant a lot. You know, it's uh, again, it, it, it's a discovery for me even now. Uh, but clearly. These little stories, and I've read a lot of these little stories, again, in, in another great book about President Reagan, The True Reagan, uh, which is written by uh, an exceptional writer, but also a dear friend, I'm, I'm glad to call him friend, James Rosebush, that the deep knowledge by, of President Reagan of how it was and what it meant for the free people of Ukraine. Through this story about the Novaradistala <laughs> Carol uh, is also very, uh, very emotional. And then, you know, uh, at the at the end of that uh, program, you know, if you allow me to quote a little I bit. I would love you to. Here, he also said that, you know, that the, the Carol ends with, we beg our Lord to our mother Ukraine to give actually the, the happy, and President Reagan said, I guess we all hope their prayer is answered. This is Ronald Reagan. And he would be very happy to hear that our prayers have been answered. In 1991, when Ukraine regained independence and started building our country as the free nation. And in, 19, in 2014 and 2022, when we did not give up, did not surrender, and we continue defending our country, and we will. We will, uh, you know, not only preserve our mother Ukraine, but rebuild it even better than it was. Well, that's a, a wonderful way to end this conversation. Ambassador Skana Markarova, we, we thank you for your time and discussion. We wish you and all Ukrainians uh, our prayers for support and success. And uh, we'll end it the way President Reagan did on that radio address from 1978. Grand freedom and return to glory. Their mother, Ukraine, and as Reagan said, we all hope their prayer is answered. We look forward to having you back on the show. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Roger, and God bless America for all your support. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.